Hello and welcome to Science Conversations, a series examining the intersection of science and faith. I'm Dr Barry Harker and my guest today is Dr John Ashton. This is my 12th conversation with Dr Ashton, based upon his book Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. Last time, Dr Ashton reviewed the work of a number of scientists who believe. Today, Dr Ashton is going to explore evidence for the existence of an intervening God. Dr Ashton is a chemist with a PhD in epistemology, a branch of philosophy dealing with the nature of knowledge and truth. Welcome, John. Hello, Barry. Good to be here. John, we've been discussing the evidence from science throughout this series of conversations. We did look at some historical evidence for a universal flood, and we're going back to history today. Why did you include this material in your book? Well... The claims of evolution um, and the Big Bang Theory are essentially founded on the materialistic worldview or naturalism, and that is that the the physical world is all that exists. There's no spiritual world. There's no uh, non-material other worlds and other minds. Now, to me... I was interested to see if, in fact, there was evidence that refuted this claim that, you know, the the physical, uh, you know, matter and energy that we see is all that exists. And so I was very interested to research this. And I had uh, thought about this and I thought, well, there are a number of accounts in history that I was aware of um, where people had premonitions that warned them of danger, um, of people that had dreams that revealed the future. And I thought, this is very interesting because science essentially says that um, the world is chaotic. It's, um, it's Many things are random. And so if you look at chaos theory and this sort of thing, it's really impossible to to know the future in any general sense. Sure, we can predict the path of a satellite, uh, maybe the trajectory of a missile, the, these sort of things in very simple physical systems. Um, but if um, we, you know... Re- in terms of knowing the future, what some, uh, something's going to happen in the future, there's no way we can predict this. And I think a classic example of this was in the film Sliding Doors, where it showed uh, a young woman racing down to catch a, a train, and just as she got there, in one one scenario the door closed just as she got there and she couldn't get on the train. In the other scenario, she made it just in time and got on the train. And it shows how, as a result of that simple fraction of a second decision to close the doors, two different outcomes occurred in her life. Her life went on two different paths. And 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 so... We know that these sort of decisions are being made all the time. You know, do we when we get to the traffic lights? Do we go through or do we stop? Do we get did and that you know how heavy did we put our foot on the accelerator? Did we overtake or not overtake that slow car? Whether or not we go through that intersection, at the somewhere down the road there might be a big semi trailer that we don't know. The brakes have failed. Uh, it's coming at an intersection. The fact that we have we stopped by the lights means that we miss that truck. 
if we went through the lights, we may collide with that truck. So we can see all these things are totally random. We can't know. And they're, they're all around us all, all the time. So how could anyone know the future? And I thought, well, it's very interesting. As I've read the Bible, the Bible, uh, the authors of the Bible make the claim that they got to know God and that God made the claim that he knows the future and can reveal the future. And that's one of the ways that we can know, A, that God exists and that he is very different from the other claimed gods because he can know the future. And so one of the things that I looked at was to to research this. Now, um, as you know, I'm very interested in how we can know. I'm very interested in assumptions. I'm very interested in what is the data telling us. So I decided to actually review this um, and look at the evidence for answers to prayer uh, and miracles and, and other supernatural events like angels. Now, I decided to put it in this book because, as I said, I'm looking at the evidence why evolution is impossible. Now, if evolution is impossible, how did we come to be here? And what's the alternative explanation? And for me, the alternative explanation is that there was a creator God who supernaturally created matter and created all the systems, whether it's the um, solar systems and the galaxies and the systems of life on Earth as well. These are all created, that these are all designed by a superintelligence. Now, if that superintelligence exists and... The Bible claims that uh, the authors of the Bible, and as I said, over 40 authors here, claim that they have had communication with this creator. So I thought, okay, what is the evidence? So first of all, I looked at some of the accounts within the Bible itself, and then I looked at some of the accounts within secular history. And I, in my view, found that, again, there was overwhelming evidence of supernatural beings an interaction with a supernatural mind. So I guess to start somewhere, uh, one of the amazing accounts uh, that's in the Bible revolves around Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is a well-known historical figure, and um, he lived in what is now present-day Iraq, and he is famous for building the Hanging Gardens of Babylon for his wife, uh, Amatus. Um, and that was listed by Herodotus as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So we know quite a bit about this. Now, the Bible records a, a book written by Daniel. Now, Daniel was an advisor in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And there's a lot of historical evidence to support this, but I'll, I'll just first of all describe uh, one of the accounts that Daniel describes. Now, Daniel describes how Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and this dream really startled him. Now, just to digress here, when I've been doing my research on dreams, particularly precognitive dreams or premonitions that revealed the future that came true, when I've interviewed the people, they've said when they had that dream, they knew that dream was something different. There was, some, there was something special about this dream. They had an intuition that that dream was special. It was telling them something in particular they needed to take notice of. It. And often that dream was repeated as well. 
So it wasn't just a normal dream. They woke up, they had a good dream or a bad dream. There was when they woke up, they said, "There's there's a there's something significant in this dream. I'm something is trying to tell me something." Now it appears that Nebuchadnezzar had one of these experiences. He had the repeated dream, but when he woke up in the morning, he couldn't remember it. But he knew that he'd had a significant dream. And the interesting thing is that he asked his wise men what to tell him what the dream was and what it meant. And uh, I mean that was the custom of those times. You know they had astrologers and this sort of thing, and, and, and certainly they were heavily into dreams. And uh, these guys said, "Well, okay, tell us what the dream is." And Nebuchadnezzar, a very smart man, Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, he built the Babylonian Empire. And he said, well, hang on. If you guys are real, I want you to tell me what I dreamt. Then I know you can tell me the interpretation. And that's very clear because, you know, a lot of people, you know, claim that they can see the future and this sort of thing. Well, you know, tell me. that was a pretty good test. And, of course, none of them can do it. And so the king got a bit angry and, you know, you're on my payroll here. Uh, I think under false pretenses if you can't tell me what my dream was. But Daniel, of course, being one of the wise men, even though he was a young uh, trainee, I suppose, at the time, was under this death sentence. And he decided to pray to God. He was a believer. He was a Hebrew. He believed in God. And he prayed to God and God revealed to him the dream. And uh, he had that revelation in his mind of what Nebuchadnezzar dreamt and what it meant. And he was able to go to the king and say, King, God has revealed to me what you dreamt, and I will tell you what it is. And he told Nebuchadnezzar, and the book records that Nebuchadnezzar says, right, that's it. That's what I dreamt. What does it mean? And what... um, And people can read this for themselves in the book of Daniel, and I think many people don't read the book of Daniel. Um, It's in chapter 2 of the book of Daniel, but it's a really amazing account when we think that, you know, Nebuchadnezzar lived 600 B.C., you know, I think he first conquered Jerusalem 605 BC, something like that. Second uh, siege of Jerusalem, I think, was 586 BC. So, you know, you know, five six hundred years before Christ, and this is the uh, and just after this is the period when Daniel is obviously writing this book. So, at least five hundred years old. And what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamt was of a, a statue of a man with a head of gold, a chest of silver. Thighs or, uh, you know, the lower section of brass and then legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. And then he saw this giant rock that came from out of nowhere and it smashed into the feet of the statue. And the statue was destroyed and then that rock grew to become the whole earth sort of thing. So this is a very different dream, you can understand. And it's interesting what Daniel said. Daniel said, he said, Nebuchadnezzar, you are you and your kingdom is essentially the head of gold. You're going to be followed by another kingdom that's inferior, like silver is less inferior to gold. That's going to be followed by another kingdom that is represented by the, the brass, which is going to be inferior again but stronger. Then you're going, that kingdom is going to be followed by another kingdom that is really strong, like iron. Um, and then that kingdom will be divided into a number of smaller kingdoms that will be like a mixture of iron and clay, and they will never combine, and then God will come and destroy all those kingdoms, 
and set up his kingdom. And So this is an outline prophecy of the world. Then. Well, in looking back at his, mm. in looking back at his, I mean, um, there were subsequent dreams that revealed more characteristics about, about the... But this uh, was the big enterprise. outline one. But this was the big outline one. And, and when we look down through history, I mean, that's exactly what happened. The, um, the Babylonian Empire, we know uh, Babylon fell to the Persians. General Gobius uh, came in. He diverted the, uh, the, the river. Euphrates that was flowing in there um, and supplying, you know, the water to the Hanging Gardens. He diverted the river so that he could march his troops in under the walls where the river normally flowed. And um, he he captured Babylon when they they thought it could not be captured, uh, the capital city. And then, of course, we know that the Persian Empire fell to Alexander the Great. And we then know that the Greek uh, Empire, Alexander's Empire, uh, slowly fell to the uh, Roman Empire. And, that, and it's interesting, just there are two legs. The Roman Empire ended up divided in east and west, one capital Rome, one capital Constantinople. And then as that empire broke up um, after you know 400 AD or thereabouts, we know that it divided into the kingdoms which have subsequently become Europe. And we know since that time, 450 AD or thereabouts, the empire's never been, Europe has never been united. Even with the so-called you know, formation of uh, the EU, um, the European Union, uh, you know, Switzerland abstained. You know, <laughs> there are different countries that uh, have have remained independent, and of course, you know, we've got major problems now. And we know, down, and it's interesting too. The uh, the interpretation was back five hundred years ago that they would try to unite through marriage and other different ways, but it would never succeed. So the the prophecy is quite detailed. Now, when we consider that we're looking at something that was written. Two and a half thousand years ago, that's 500 BC, and it has outlined the history of the world up to the present time in that part of, of Europe there where uh, the, the gospel was, was first preached and originated from. I think that is, to me, pretty amazing evidence. The fact that the, the prophecy was so accurate led people to say, well, the book of Daniel couldn't have been written in the 6th century BC. It had to be written closer to the time of Christ. So they say the 2nd century BC. But there's evidence that, there's clear evidence in a number of lines, we can't spend time on it now, but there's evidence from the time of Alexander the Great that indicates that he knew about Daniel's book. Can you tell us about that? Oh, well, that, well there's, there's lots of... Um of evidence, sure. Um, well, we can talk about uh, the Alexander the Great, and, and this is another very interesting dream in that Herodias, uh, the Greek historian that uh, lived uh, a couple hundred years BC, he wrote that Alexander had, uh, when he was a boy, had a dream where this uh, man appeared to him dressed in a fairly strange way and said to him, uh, come over here, God is giving this to you. And he was pointing over there to Mesopotamia. And so Alexander knew from this young man, I think, I think he was in his late teens, 
he saw this as he was going to be uh, grow up to be a successful conqueror, and he indeed was. He came down, and as I said, he defeated the um, the Persians there, 331 BC, I think it was, and came in and conquered the land. Now, it's very interesting that when Alexander was coming through, coming to marching towards Jerusalem, he conquered Tyre and, and so forth, and that was quite another quite famous prophecy, really, with regard to Tyre, that it would be pulled down and uh, thrown into the sea and the fishermen would hang their nets on it. Now, here's Tyre as sort of an inland city. Now, there was a, a fortress on a little island just off shore, but, I mean, you know, that's a really strange po- prophecy, but in actual fact, when Alexander was marching down, the people fled out to their island fortress, and so he demolished the city and used the stones to build a causeway out to march his uh, seas equipment out and take the island. <laughs> you know, So that's a pretty amazing prophecy that was written before. But when, uh, when Alexander the Great was coming towards Jerusalem, uh, Jediah, who was the priest in charge there, was aligned with um, Darius and he had a, an agreement, a peace agreement with him. And he told Alexander, he said, I'm going to be faithful to that agreement. And Alexander said, well, you know what we do to people that don't cooperate with us. And so Jediah got all the people to pray. And Jediah had a dream. And God revealed to him, he said, when you see Alexander approaching, uh, we'd like you to march out, get all the people to, to wear the robes that they wear when they go to the temple. I want the priests to go ahead blowing their trumpets and you go ahead in front of the priests and open the gates of the city and march out singing towards Alexander. And it's interesting. So this is Herodotus, a secular Greek historian recording this, that when Alexander... God drew closer with who was at the head of his army, with his troops marching behind. He dismounted, halted his troops, dismounted, walked up to Jediah and bowed down. Now that's amazing. So here you have this man who is just conquering all the nations and he goes and bows down to the priest because this man, Jediah, was dressed as the man was dressed in his dream. And so this is a really, really amazing coincidence. And one of the things that the, the priests then said, they said, well, we want to be able to keep the sabbatical year every seventh year. Uh, we don't uh, plough and harvest that year, so we want to be exempt from taxes that year. And Alexander gave them exemption for taxes on the year and treated them very kindly. And that's one of the reasons when you read with Alexander's conquest, Jerusalem wasn't raised. And uh, so, you know, that's, a, that's an amazing piece of, um, you know, history there that, uh, that supports that. The other, uh, but the other aspect with regard to Babylon itself is I think that you have uh, Herodotus or it might have been one of the other historians recorded that um, a, a, a somewhat um, a debauched man was a debauched king lived in Babylon when... Uh, Gobius took the took the city, but he doesn't name the king. And so historians up until uh, the 1800s, there were no record of who the king was in Babylon at, at that time. And the Bible said that it was Belteshazzar, Belshazzar rather. And um, then subsequently in the 1800s, they found these documents that showed that Belshazzar was the name of the king 
in Babylon, just exactly as Daniel had recorded in the Bible, even though the Greek historians in the era 200 BC didn't, know, didn't record the name. Of the uh, of the king there, so there's a lot of other evidence that we've had since that time that um, would substantiate yes a much earlier writing of Daniel. Mm. So fulfilled prophecy is very clear evidence that something supernatural is going on. Mm. So you have to make a choice then as yes. to what part of supernature is being involved here. Well, well, that's that's true. Is there good and evil <laughs> supernatural? Uh, Beings, and I think the Bible certainly talks about that there are demons, uh, that there are very evil supernatural beings, and that there are very good supernatural beings. And uh, a number of Christian authors too, so Christian psychologists, have written that there's a battle for the mind. There's a battle for the human mind. I mean, that's a little bit off topic what we're talking about here today. But one of the things that I was looking at down through history was uh, from ancient times, there were accounts of people seeing the future ahead of time. And to me, and, and some of these details are, 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 were, you know, in, in, great, in great detail. Mm. Jesus himself said, I think it's in John fourteen twenty nine. I told you beforehand so that when it comes to pass, you might believe. In other words, the the reason for prophecy is not just to titillate our imaginations, mm. but to to help us to come to belief, mm. and also, I'm sure, to prepare us for the future. There have been occasions mm. when it's important for God's people to know what the future holds. Mm. So it's quite clear that if you get fulfilled prophecy, mm. then God's trying to tell us that this should help us to believe. Hmm. Well, I mean, there's the prophecies of Jesus himself um, that, are, that are recorded there. You know, like one of the prophecies that Jesus said was, look, you know, I tell you, uh, and he pointed to Herod's temple, which was an amazing building. I mean, the remains of the foundation are there in the Wailing Wall. We have these huge stones that are there. And Jesus said, look, I, I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another. And... You know, that, that's him. Why, why would it be? Now, it's very interesting. During the siege of Jerusalem, when the Roman soldiers got in under Titus, um, the Titus had given instructions to his commanders, don't destroy the temple. I mean, it was a beautiful piece of architecture. And, uh, and uh, But what happened was, in the foray, as the Jews had retreated to the temple and were fighting very fiercely, a, um, a fire stick was thrown through one of the openings into the the temple area, the enclosed temple area. And, of course, it was lined with timber and curtains and it caught fire and began fighting uh, and, and, uh, yeah, and, and, and caught up. And Titus actually asked his soldiers to stop fighting and help fight the fire, bring water about the... Um, the Jews, unfortunately, many of them trapped inside. They were going to die, but they continued to fight and hamper the firefighting attempts uh, to put out the fire by the Roman soldiers. And, of course, the Roman soldiers weren't too happy about that either. They reacted and actually disobeyed uh, Titus and then continued to fight. Now, the temple, of course, was lined with much gold as well, and that melted and so when the whole thing cooled down, it's understood that the, the soldiers just turned one stone over another looking for the melted gold that had run down <laughs> into the cracks. So it's, um, 
you know, uh, you know, a pretty unusual sort of prophecy, but we saw it fulfilled. And, of course, heaps of Jesus' prophecies were fulfilled. Yeah. Let's go outside of the Bible now. Mm. Are, there, are there any instances where people have um, heard voices or received prophecies that have actually come true? I know that you use Joan of Arc in your book. The reason I used Joan of Arc was because her trial um, about her claims of uh, hearing voices and seeing things in light and so forth uh, is well recorded. And psychologists have studied the court trials, uh, recordings, um, and... Uh, and they've been attempted to explain this behaviour in terms of her mental illness. Some people, of course, have um, uh, have been concerned that I've included Joan of Arc in here because she's a Catholic saint, but of course she was only made a, a saint some time later. So we have really good evidence, um, historical evidence, still preserved about what was happening back then. Now, when you think here was this... 17-year-old girl who was put in charge of the French army at a time when women were very much subjugated by men is really amazing. And when we look into it, there are a number of claims about Joan of Arc. She was a very spiritual girl, a very pious girl. That was recognised within the community. From an early age, she claimed to hear these voices which she believed was God or an angel talking to her. And then she saw these beings in bright light that talked to her. And they gave her specific directions about things. Now, one of the things that she was told to do was to go and see the, the king to do a, um, a presentation to him. Now, at that time, there was a war between England and France. There was a dispute over the kingship of France. And the heir of the king of France, uh, the Dauphin, had not been crowned. Uh, because the English troops were occupying the uh, traditional town of Reims where the kings were crowned and were laying siege to the city of Orleans. And the king had been praying to God for somehow God to intervene. And Joan of Arc asked for an audience with the king. And, of course, she was questioned about this. And she said, well, I can tell the king what his prayers were. And so the king allowed her to come in and she was able to tell the king what he had been praying. And because of that, he put her in charge of the army. Now, that's a historical fact that Joan of Arc was given command of the army. Secondly, following the instructions by the angels, she was extremely successful in lifting the siege of Orleans and leading the French armies and the king to Reims where he was crowned and liberating France. Now, when you read some of the transcripts of her replies to the questions, now, she was examined by the clerics from the University of Paris. That's where she was tried. And I can't remember offhand her quotes. I've, I've tried to remember them, and I, and I must practice them better. But her replies were absolutely brilliant. They stunned the, her prosecutors her ability to answer her questions and remain loyal to God. They're, when you read them, you can see, wow, this, this was no common person that was, was speaking here. And she was true to her claims that God was spoken to her 
right up to the point of death. She died rather than recant. She, she was that faithful. So that was obviously a very, very real experience to her. And she had a prediction. She was told that she would die on a particular day, that she would be, or she would be captured on a particular day. And that, and that uh, came true. So these, it's very, that's a, a very interesting case, Joan of Arc, and people can you know, look up the historical records, the, the uh, tr- accounts of the trial, the records that uh, were kept of the trial, and, and judge for themselves. But here we have a very prominent historical figure that uh, certainly defies the times. But there's a, another interesting Situation here. See, when I was researching, there there are a number of a number of dreams uh, like this. Like, for example, um, Abraham Lincoln had a dream um, where he saw himself after the assassination attempt lying on a table, and he told friends about that just before. I mean, he had the, the dream prior to this. He had the dream prior to his assassination. <laughs> yeah. Yes, obviously. Um, Another interesting uh, account is described by the famous uh, author Mark Twain. When he was a young person, he was working with his brother on the paddle steamers uh, going up the, the rivers in, uh, in, in America. And he had this really, really vivid dream where he saw his brother in a steel coffin and he thought it was in his sister's room and there on the coffin were bouquet of red roses and white roses. And this was a really, really vivid dream, and he told his sister about it. He was really concerned about it, what it meant. Now, uh, six months or a year later, uh, the boy, he and his brother, who normally worked together on the same paddle steamer, were separated. And his brother was on a paddle steamer, I think it was called the Philadelphia, and the boilers blew up. And there was huge casualties and really severe burns. And his brother was one of the people that was really, really severely injured. And he didn't die till 10 days after the accident. And the young women uh, in the town were so impressed with this young man struggled to survive and he nearly made it, but then he died, that they put him together and bought him a steel coffin. And by the time Mark Twain arrives, and he writes that when he he got there, he the room wasn't in his sister's home as he thought was in the dream. It was actually in a public hall in the town where there were a lot of bodies waiting to be buried. Um, he was there in the hall, and there were white roses on the on the coffin. And he remembered in his dream there were red and white roses. And while he was sitting there, a lady came in and put a bouquet of red roses. On the coffin. Now, I collected lots of stories like this, and I could talk for ages on this. Um, but what I decided to do was I thought, I'll do an experiment because I'm very interested in data, I'm very interested in experiment. Can I reproduce this? So, uh, at the time, um, I was chief chemist for uh, Sanitarium. And we had a large research facility employing about 100 people, over 100 people actually, including engineers, food technologists, chemists and so forth. And I thought what I will do is I'll do a survey among the staff here of people who have had precognitive dreams. And there were a number of people who'd had precognitive dreams. When you say precognitive, what do you mean? What I mean is a dream revealing the future in detail. So they had this dream well ahead of time that revealed the future Mm -hmm. in detail. Now, 
One of those actually involved one of my staff. So there were twins that were working in our research. One of the twins, Paul, worked in the food technology division and the other twin, Stephen, worked for me in the uh, chemistry analytical division. And what had happened was when they were at, when the boys were at school, because our twins are in the same class, Paul had had a dream. And in this dream, he saw himself walking along next to Stephen, who was in a stretcher, and he was being pushed out by ambulance officers, and Paul was walking with him. And just at that moment, they were passing the school auditorium where there was a, a physical education class in. And as he looked over the dado board into the window into the classroom, um, there was a girl that he knew who looked up, saw him smile and wave because she couldn't see the, the stretcher down below the dado board. And so that was the dream. Now, about six months later, the, uh, a young man went berserk in, during a metalwork class, and in the mayhem, uh, Stephen was knocked over and severely hit his head against a piece of equipment, was knocked unconscious, the ambulance was called, Paul stayed with him, and as they were wheeling Stephen out, he just had this sense of, this, I've seen this before. And he realised that they were just walking past the gymnasium. And as he looked into the gymnasium, there was the girl who saw him, looked up, smiled and waved. <laughs> that's, that's pretty cool. And he said, you know, that everlasting impression. And so here are the two guys worked for us. Then there was uh, another girl who told the story of her father. And this is similar to the one with Joan of Arc, where it was revealed to her when she was dying. Now, her father was a builder. He was working in New Guinea uh, for a church organisation. And he had, one night he had a really, really vivid dream where an angel showed him the books of his life and that this was the end of his life. And he noticed that there were only a few pages left, but he didn't know. how. He couldn't remember how many pages there were. And he told his wife about this. But then a few years later, he had the dream again, and this time, when the angel showed him the book, there was only one page left. And he told his wife, and he made, he saw all his children, and you know, told them that he loved him, he told them about the dream and this sort of thing. And it was some months later when he was working on a volunteer building program in the Solomon Islands, I think it was, that he was accidentally killed in a building accident. So that was another interesting uh, scenario there. Tell me about Dr Merlin Spear. So Dr Spear is a, a local uh, medical uh, physician uh, that um, works in the local suburb here, or well, used to work in the local suburb here. And she, when I was talking to her one day, she said, oh, I've, I've had quite a few experiences. She said one that was really stood out to me was... Um, as a, a young uh, medical officer, a registrar up at a hospital at um, Wingham, I was driving from where I lived down near Taree up to Wingham, up the windy uh, uh, mountain road, uh, by myself in my car, when suddenly I heard this really musical voice from behind saying, pull over and stop. And she said, I just couldn't help but say, I beg your pardon. You know, she'd been brought up with manners, obviously. <laughs> And the voice repeated, pull over and stop. And she was just absolutely terrified. She didn't know whether there was somebody in the car. But she said she had, well, when I say she was terrified, she, she obeyed, but she said she had this sense of, 
of a piece that she wasn't in danger from that uh, from someone being in the car, but it was really strange. She pulled over, and just at that moment that she pulled over, a yellow Ford Mustang sports car came round this blind corner at high speed on the wrong side of the road. And she said if she hadn't have pulled over at that time, she would have suffered very serious injury, if not killed. So, and she said it was as clear to me, she said, I can remember that. She said it was an audible musical voice. And she said, and I, and I obeyed. So there are a lot of people have these sort of experiences. I'm Dr Barry Harker, and you're listening to Science Conversations. My guest is Dr John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. John has been exploring evidence for the existence of an intervening God. We'll go to a break now. When we come back, John will examine more evidence for an intervening God. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612-4973-3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3ABN Australia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia, Inc., P.O. Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales, 2264, Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined us, I'm Dr Barry Harker and you're listening to Science Conversations. My guest is Dr John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. John has been exploring evidence for the existence of an intervening God, and he's going to continue doing this for the remainder of our program. John, were there any other stories that came out of your research? Oh, yes, there are several other accounts um, from the staff in the lab. From memory, I think there were about five people that came forward, so that was about uh, roughly 5% of uh, the people at the laboratory had had these experiences. One of the other ones that I recorded in the uh, in the book Evolution Impossible was uh, from Joe, one of the uh, staff in the engineering department, and he told me that um, about 10 years earlier he'd lived up in the north coast of uh, New South Wales and he was a keen surfer. Uh, he used to go surfing in the Ballina area and he had a dream where in this dream he saw himself um, swimming out and he saw a shark in the water. And then after that, the dream switched to he was at a, uh, at a gathering of church folk and they were by a river and they were standing on the edge of the river and there were a group of young people standing there and then suddenly one of the girls who was standing on the bank of the river slipped and fell into the river. It wasn't a fast-moving river, it was a still river and people were all standing there waiting for her to come back up out of the water but she didn't come back up out of the water near the bank. She came up out of the water further over near the centre of this wide river And as she came out of the water, she was wearing a white robe, and there there appeared a a bearded man also in a white robe who took her hand 
and she walked away smiling with the man. And then the dream ended. So it was a really, really strange piece, said powerfully vivid dream. Now, a few weeks later, before going to church, he decided to get up early and go surfing with a friend. And, they, and when they went out surfing, on this particular morning, they saw two sharks and uh, they decided to come in. It's interesting, just recently in the news, Barry, we've had several shark attacks up in that, uh, in that same area. And he came in and he thought, yeah, that, that was a bit scary. Um, and uh, they cut short their, their surfing trip, then went home, got ready and went to church. When they got to church, they found that that night, the young lady that he had seen in the dream had been killed in a car accident during the night. And that sort of, to him, explained that was in his dream, the young lady falling into the water. And so these these dreams, there's another one too. Actually, when I was beginning to work on this chapter, uh, when I was just in uh, the local church where I attend, an older man uh, uh, stood up and told a story about when he was a boy, he was uh, visiting his grandmother's place. And he and some other children were other cousins, his cousin, he was playing with his cousins, and uh, uh, grandma was looking after them, and he can remember she was doing some, some washing on the old washing board. <laughs> and suddenly... She dropped what she was doing and raced over and grabbed this inflated tractor tyre that the children were playing with and she ran off down the road. Now, they lived, whatever it was, half a kilometre away or more from the, uh, from the sea and she ran off. They didn't know what was happening. But what they later found out was that as she was doing her washing, she looked down and... In the water, of the tub of water that was next to her, it was almost as if she saw a vision of her husband drowning. And she immediately had known that he'd gone fishing that, that, that morning down on one of the break walls. And she raced down there, and there he was. He'd actually been swept off the break wall into the water, and he was struggling to stay afloat because he wasn't a really good swimmer. And she was able to throw that tractor tyre to the man, uh, to her husband, and he was able to keep afloat then until um, some other nearby fishermen came, were able to get close enough to rescue him. So that, you know, that was just something you know, on the spur of the moment that, that, um, that came up there. Another one was told to me by um, a lady, uh, Joy, um, who had served for a long time in a number of uh, uh, positions in, in Africa, um, uh, particularly in uh, ministry positions for, for the church and encouraging women, the, these sort of things. And she tells a, a, a very interesting story that was told by a young lady um, that came to, uh, uh, to see her. This uh, young woman had, had driven home and parked her car in the driveway with her little girl in the back and had uh, gone in to open the gate. But she'd made the mistake of leaving the car running. Now, at that time, there were a lot of carjackings going on and cars were being stolen. I think this occurred in, in Zimbabwe, were being stolen and driven across the border and being sold. And um, there was a man 
hiding behind some bushes. And when she'd hopped out of the car and left the car running with it, he had just jumped up immediately, jumped into the car and had driven off with her little girl. And, and she was just so frantic then. Um, it was a Peugeot car, had a full, near full tank of fuel. Um, it was, a, a, I understand, a fairly new car in, in good condition. And she, she was just absolutely frantic and she just began screaming on the road. Now, another man drove along, uh, came along and saw her and said, what's happened? And, and she said, my, someone's, uh, you know, uh, carjacked, my, stolen my car, my daughter's in it, and they've hit, headed that way. And they had a general idea that they'd head out to the main highway, which was the main highway off to you know, uh, in another country. And so he said, well, look, I'll, I'll give chase. And uh, the lady continued to scream. She didn't know what was happening. Another man pulled up. And um, he said to her, well, um, uh, lady, well, look, would you like to hop in and I'll, I'll um, you know, we can give chase. And uh, she was very reluctant. She didn't know this man, but she looked down and she saw that there was a Bible on the front passenger seat. And the man saw her look and see the Bible and he said, look, he said, I'm a minister of religion. Let's pray. Let's pray that the Lord will stop the car. And... Um, so they prayed and then they gave chase out along this road. And after a few kilometres, they came to the car, stopped on the side of the road, and the little girl standing with the first man that had given chase. And when the little girl was questioned, she said, well, I was driving on along and I was pleading with the man to stop the car, to please stop the car and take me back to my mummy. When she said, suddenly, I saw what was like an angel landed on the bonnet of the car and pushed what was like a sword down into the engine and the car stopped. And the man jumped out of the car and ran off. Now, of course, when they looked at the car, there was no hole in the bonnet or anything like that. But what they found was the clutch had failed. So... You know, I don't know, did the little girl make up the story <laughs> or what? But anyway, the bottom line is the car stopped. <laughs> um, but it's interesting because these stories, when we read the New Testament and the book of Acts, there are lots of stories of answers to prayer. There are lots of stories of miracles, angels letting Paul out of prison, this sort of thing. And we know that the journey of Paul was real. It's been verified by historical accounts and, and these sort of things. You know, we have so much uh, evidence uh, there. So uh, these accounts, and, and there are so many of them. If you read the Christian literature, there's thousands of these accounts of people, extraordinary events that, that happened. And these are honest people. They're, they, these are real experiences that happen. They're, they're real answers to prayer. You know, another one, just uh, quickly, I guess, a, a close friend of mine that I often went camping with one time. We were uh, sitting around a fire and he was saying how uh, he and his wife had just become Christians. And they were living up in Townsville, a city up in uh, North Queensland. And um, they were so excited about becoming Christians that uh, his wife decided to take some uh, Christian books over to her sister, who lived uh, a couple hundred kilometres inland. And so one morning she uh, sent off uh, to do this. Now, just prior to this, my friend Mike told me that he had had... Uh, this repetitive dream. He hadn't told his wife about it, but in this dream, 
he saw his wife driving along the car, going round this corner on this on the car, and the dream just suddenly stopped. And so he, he, he saw his wife driving on this road, the, the same road that she would be going on to visit her sister. She's driving along, she comes up to this corner, and then the dream just stops. He doesn't know what happens then, but his dream just stops on this corner. And he remembers that it was this unusual shaped corner, and he said in his dream, he said it was really weird, he said because he had this really strong smell of onion grass. He said there was this really strong smell in my dream. And he said, anyway, it's interesting. He said, I didn't tell anyone about this dream, but he said, I had it two or three times. And it was really like strong. He said, very unusual. Anyway, when his wife, Marie, was due to come back, she hadn't returned. So Mike rang his brother-in-law and he said, well, Marie left some hours ago. And then Mike then remembered. He said, well, she hasn't arrived home. You know, and the guys worked out, well, she should have arrived home. And that was when Mike told his brother-in-law, he said, well, look, I've had this dream. It's this particular corner shaped like that. And he says, really strong smell of onion grass. And his brother said, I know where that is. And they called an ambulance and they went out. He was able to describe where the corner was. And it was on a section of road where the road banked heavily, say, to the right and then dropped off to the left. And what had happened was Marie's car had actually rolled on the corner, had rolled over the bank, and because of the angle of the road, it was actually totally out of sight. And being an outback Australian road, there was, nobody saw it happen. And uh, Mike said the ambulance officer said when they found Marie, her head was jammed between her chest and the steering wheel in such a position that they said that, you know, another hour, half an hour, an hour, and she would have died. So there is where a dream ahead of time helped my friend Mike save his wife's life. Hmm. So when we look at that, there's historical dreams like... um, uh, the banting that discovered insulin. He had a dream about the pancreas and um, so you're telling me that scientists have dreams too. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the uh, the guy that um, thought of the uh, periodic table. I, I won't attempt to pronounce the Russian name. Uh, I'm not very good with those sort of names. Um, he essentially had it revealed to him in a dream. The major B oil fields in Kuwait were discovered as a result of a dream. The, the geologists over there had believed that they would find oil there and they'd raised shares, uh, you know, shares after shares, of, you know, funding after funding um, to do their drilling and they drilled and drilled and drilled and they hadn't uh, found any oil and uh, they'd essentially given up and he had this amazing dream where this lady showed him where he would find treasure in this dream. And it was, uh, and uh, in his dream, he saw this particular landforms and he managed to convince a few um, investors to support him this last time. And he went and drilled where he saw the, um, the formations in his dream. Uh, as I said, I've recorded these details in my book, The Seventh Millennium. They've been recorded by other psychologists at, in university studies. That have, they've studied recorded dreams and so forth. And um, that's where they found, discovered, I think it was the Kuwait oil fields were discovered. So, yes, there's a number of... The archaeological discoveries have been made as a result of uh, revelations of dreams. Um, 
uh, you know, some of these uh, recognitions have almost been, you know, uh, official uh, in in some of the records where they've they've acknowledged them. Yeah. Tell me amazing. about the uh, the Battle of the Mons in Belgium in 1914, and the Angel intervention. Yes, for well, sometimes this account um, is disputed, but it really it really fits uh, a num. There were a number of accounts that have been reported in August 1914 during the First World War. Uh, there was the British people were actually called to a national day of prayer, and we we forget that that back back then many people went to church, many people believed in God, and people responded and they went and they prayed because the Allied forces were under tremendous pressure from uh, the German forces. There was massive loss of life, and it looked like that um, the uh, the Allied army in Mons was going to be wiped out. And so they'd actually called for this special day of prayer on the 23rd and 24th of August in 1914. The British Army was greatly outnumbered. Um, And, uh, in fact, defeat was so imminent that uh, it's understood that a... um, a uh, the the Times newspaper correspondent who was reporting on the war prematurely telegraphed the news that the British army had been annihilated. But in actual fact, the next day news came that the the disaster had actually been averted by a miraculous turning a uh, turn of events involving angels. And there are a number of testimonies by both British and German officers where the German soldiers saw that there were British cavalry, that there were, there were far more greater forces there, um, and they turned around and retreated, um, when in actual fact uh, there weren't. And so that's why it's called the, um, uh, the Angels of Mons. So a number of accounts for, for particular soldiers reported that they saw beings, some saw beings in between, um, protecting them, and on the other side they saw them as sort of warriors advancing on them. So it's very interesting. But the bottom line is the prayers were answered. The British Army was saved. Now, we know that there have been some premonitions around disasters like the uh, mine disaster in Wales back in the 60s and also Mm. the sinking of the Titanic. Can you briefly cover those couple? Yes, uh, certainly. I I think it's important to recognise that studies have been made of a number of these important disasters spent, uh, like uh, the Aberfan mine slag disaster. And uh, you know, like a professor, one of the professors of uh, mathematics at the University of London did studies into this, and because he was very interested in the evidence for the supernatural, and it's interesting that a number of those children, before the mine disaster, was a very religious town, came home and told their parents, "Mummy, it's okay. I know I'm going to be with Jesus soon. You don't have to worry about me." And um, a couple of days later, of course, the whole slag heap slid down the hill and 176 teachers and children were killed in that disaster. But there were at least 23 corroborated accounts of premonitions beforehand. So that is where there's a person had it and the other, other person witnessed them telling that they had this premonition of something really, really bad going to happen. And so that's very, very powerful evidence. How can you know people know the future there? Again, with the Titanic, uh, psychologists study 
again, a number of people um, had uh, you know detailed uh, premonitions of the Titanic. Actually, there was a book written before the Titanic uh, sank. Um, a retired merchant navy officer, Morgan Ro- uh, Robinson, fourteen years before the Titanic sailed, uh, r- uh, wrote a book called Futility, and it was published in eighteen ninety eight. And the story revolved around uh, a huge, supposedly unsinkable passenger ship fitted with 19 watertight compartments, and it was called the Titan. And it featured watertight doors which closed automatically, and because the ship was deemed unsinkable, it carried only minimum number of lifeboats required by law. And... um, uh, with two, uh, 2,000 people on board, the Titan was attempting a record crossing when its starboard hull was severely pierced as a result of a collision with an iceberg in the North Atlantic. Uh, only two boatloads of survivors were rescued with a vast loss of life. <laughs> so this is story. This is a published story, right? As uh, a matter of fact, I have a copy of it at home. Um, it was published in 1898 uh, by M.F. Mansfield in New York. And this story is an amazingly accurate in prophetic detail. Even the name Titan is a close to the Titanic, name Titanic. So that, that's amazing. That's, that's, that's written there. Now, where do these ideas come from? And this is the interesting thing. Where do the things in our mind come from? And the Nobel Prize winner uh, in the area of uh, uh, physiology, uh, Sir John Eccles, pointed out, One of the things is, how can my mind interact with matter? And we know we can think with our mind, a non-material thing, and move our little finger. And I think the fact that we have these prophecies, the fact that we have these premonitions, and there's heaps more. You know, I wrote a whole book on it called The Seventh Millennium, and I've documented it to the references in literature, that powerful evidence that there is another greater mind that communicates with our mind. And to me, that explains the prophecies in the Bible, why they're all so accurate. It explains how people can know the future. And I I think it's powerful evidence for an intervening God. Thanks, John. I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and you've been listening to Science Conversations. My guest is Dr. John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. John has been exploring evidence for the existence of an intervening God Next week will be my last conversation with Dr. Ashton, in this series at least. John is going to tell me his personal story of faith. Don't miss it. Bye for now and God bless you.